This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Defined by grace, 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 community, community, and, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That song is a necessary reminder. Those words are necessary reminders because so often we can feel like, man, I, I, things are tough. Things go really difficult. We have situations that we just can't make sense of. And you start to feel like, well, man, where is, where is God? Uh, thinking about situations for even people that are a part of this church family. And there are really hard situations people are going through that it can be very easy to go, where is God? Things that happen that elicit any number of emotions from us. And we have to figure out what to do with those emotions. We have to figure out how to respond to really difficult times. Ultimately, we have to know what it means to still walk in this idea of righteousness, holiness and justice, even when circumstances don't seem to bear them out. They don't seem to elicit that naturally. So we've been walking through this sermon, the most famous sermon Jesus ever preached. Longest is roughly about three chapters worth of a sermon and called the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is basically saying, if you want to know how to even respond in the hard times, how to how to live well in the good times, if you want to know what it means to just look like God in re- regardless of what uh, circumstances you're in, here is the and if in many ways, here's the rule book. Here are the, uh, in many ways, here are the calling cards of what a kingdom citizen looks like. So we started talking about what it means to be, to walk in God's kingdom. And we use this word ethos, this ethos of the kingdom. What are the ethics of God's kingdom? What does it mean to say that I love God? What does it mean to say that God loves me? What does it mean to say that he's not just my savior, but he's my Lord. So I live in subjection to the ways in, that, that he has called us to live. And so we've walked through so much of the chapter in, in Matthew 5 already. We've talked about these beatitudes and all of these aspects of the kingdom that should be true of our hearts. So often are not true which should be where our hearts of of repentance should be geared, right? If we find ourselves in a place, man, I don't don't see myself really seeing myself as humble the way that I should be. All right, what areas of Jesus's nature should I be acquiring more and living in and praying through? So those things are true of my heart. So we walked through all of that and we walked through what it means to be righteous and what it means to be just. And so Jesus is now walking through this sermon and he makes another turn and he begins to say some things that deal with an issue that I guarantee every single person in this room struggles with or has struggled with. I'm going to guess at least once. And that is the topic of anger. Anybody ever been angry? Just a few. Okay, that's all right. I'll be alone. We've all been angry on some level, right? Upset, been mad. We've all been angry at different times. And and so it's interesting what Jesus does when he combines a couple of issues here before, because he starts talking about murder. And what we're going to see when we read the text, he starts talking about murder. And and he basically is getting across a point that hopefully we've, we've had to hit on as a church for quite some time. And that is... 
God cares about your behavior. Okay. He cares and he demands a certain degree of the way that we live and the way that we comport with his kingdom. But he also cares about your heart that actually serves as the foundation for your behavior. In other words, it's one thing to be happy about getting the right outcomes. It's another thing to actually the reasons for those outcomes matter as well. You've heard it said many times in a pithy way, but it's very true. Um, The heart of every matter is the matter of the heart. So regardless of what you're doing, why you're doing it matters to God. And you notice when, as we're going to read through here, he talks about murder and he talks about anger. And when you think about why, I mean, what's what's the precipitating emotion that normally comes before or undergirds any murderous outcome? Almost every time the answer is anger. So so it makes sense. Someone murders, takes the life of another. Typically, it's because of anger. So, yes, everybody gets angry. Sometimes we get angry enough to think about lashing out. Can anybody admit to just think about lashing out? Maybe a little bit. Okay, okay, I see that hand. I see that hand. Many times we may not actually do what we thought about doing. That's probably a good thing. Right. You haven't thought, man, I could just strangle them. Now, you don't really want to asphyxiate and cut off the air supply to this person. I'm probably my hand gesture show you. I thought about it before. We're not actually going to go do that, but we get these emotions. We get these these feelings. Again, we we, we think about doing the things we and we likely won't do them. But what is anger exactly? Like, what is anger? When you really think about it, when you just break down kind of the anatomy of anger, anger, my definition, anger is a is an emotional response to an undesired outcome. That's fair. Anger is an emotional response to an undesired outcome. Now, let me break this down. Because there's there's a lot to break down within anger. But when you think about this, there's something that I assume should be the case or I expect should be the case. And it does not happen. And as a result, I have an emotional response. Most times anger uh, can be I put it this way. Anger can be founded or unfounded. Here's why I have to say this. Anger by itself is not enough to be an excuse for bad behavior. Anger by itself can serve as a reason for bad behavior, but not an excuse. Do we know the difference? I think it's important because we use the word excuse wrongly all the time, in my opinion. Somebody says something, it's like, that's just an excuse. Well, we use that now more colloquially, but, t- but technically an excuse should be something that does exonerate you because it does excuse you from what it is that you're doing. We kind of use it wrongly nowadays. But the truth of the matter is many times the things, if you are angry and you do something wrong or you act in such a way that actually harms somebody, why'd you slap them in the face? Well, they said something to me I didn't like. Well, that's a reason. It's not an excuse. You see the difference. It doesn't exonerate you. It doesn't absolve you of your responsibility to actually make it right. See, things that are excused, if, if, you, if somebody were to try to take your life and you kill them in self-defense, that is excusable. That's an excuse defense. You, there is no culpability, culpability on your part because it's an excuse. So 
Why do I have to say this? Because sometimes we love to trust our emotions so much that if I'm angry, I believe that's justification enough to do whatever I want to bring about my remedy. Are you following? Do you see? This is what our emotions do. This is what our anger does. So here's the first step. If I'm angry, the question is, is it a founded or unfounded anger? Am I angry about something uh, that is actually founded? Is, in other words, is there a justified anger or an unjustified anger? Now, what happens when we're angry about something that is, that is well-founded? We have good reason, right? Well, uh, if it's founded anger, these are clearly agreed upon expectations, right? We have an agreement on what should happen. You're clear on what I expect of you. I'm clear of what I should, uh, of, uh, yeah, you're clear of what I expect from you and I'm clear on what should be expected back. Those things are clear. We know what it is. So, so we've got these clearly agreed upon expectations and then the facts demonstrate that these expectations go unmet. You were supposed to do this for me. I can look at these facts and it shows you didn't do it. I was supposed to do something for you and the facts show that I didn't do it. All right, clearly I'm upset. I'm angry because I expected a certain thing. That happens, but more often than not, a lot of our anger falls in the unfounded section. And the unfounded anger falls because what happens is uh, our expectations of each other are not clear. I expect something from you. You have no idea I'm really expecting that because I just assumed you would know I was expecting that. And so now it's, uh, an expectation doesn't go, uh, goes unmet and, I, and I'm upset and I'm angry or or the expectation I had of you was faulty to begin with. But you still didn't meet it. So now I'm angry. In this sense, in a very unfounded way, I'm angry. And then this is what happens even more so. There may be a difference in expectations. Maybe you knew about it. Maybe you didn't. I don't know. But here's the thing. I don't have enough fa facts to know for sure what it is. So I fill in the blanks. I fill in the blanks. Well, I don't know for sure if you did, but then I started to, well, you should have known because, you know, in my mind, if I was there, I would have known this thing. Am I the only one that's ever done that? Y'all, this is what we do. I'm angry already. I already know a certain thing has not happened. There's an outcome that has not happened for me. So I'm already upset that the outcome hasn't happened. So now I've got to come figure out why it didn't happen. And it's the filling of the blanks that start to cause me to get angry now. Oh, it didn't happen because you just didn't want to, even though you knew that I needed that. You decided not to because you wanted to do what you wanted to do. That may be true. Maybe it may not be true, but it doesn't matter. I filled in the blanks. You guys remember, I don't know if they do this anymore. When I was a kid, we used to have Mad Libs. You guys remember Mad Libs have like a story and there's certain portions of the English language that get left out. So it's like put an adjective here, put a noun here, put a verb here. And then when you tell the story, some outlandish, crazy story. Y'all, we play Mad Libs with each other all the time. We, we do it. There's no question. There's something that doesn't happen. I'm, I'm upset about. But when I try to figure out why it didn't happen, that's when I fill in the blanks. I don't really do real, authentic, good faith fact finding to determine whether or not this thing happened the way I think it did. It doesn't matter. Now I've put together a narrative that justifies my anger. That's that's our nature. This is what this isn't just a few of us. This is most, if not all of us, depending on the situation.
So we've got founded anger. We've got unfounded anger. Here's the issue. Whether your anger is justified or not justified, every single form of anger you have desires a remedy. It desires a remedy. You want to find some kind of a way to assuage this anger that you have as a result of what has or has not occurred. And this is when it becomes dangerous because anger, since anger always wants a remedy. Let's go back to what Jesus is getting ready to show us here. Murder equals anger, founded or unfounded, plus a false remedy. Murder equals anger plus a false remedy. If I, for whatever reason why people will commit murder, there's the remedy has to be ridding you from the face of the earth. So I'm angry. Again, doesn't even matter whether it's founded or not. The anger's already there. And I want to bring about my own remedy. So I do it myself. So there's no question. Jesus starts with this very, very easy. Everybody would agree this type of anger that leads you to murder, that's bad. It was easy for him to start with this because everybody gets murder itself is bad. Throughout the Old Testament, the law, these, the Jewish leaders that were listening, they all were like, well, yeah, Jesus, we're on board. I mean, murder is bad. But since everyone gets angry, Jesus points out something deeper. Because Jesus clearly is trying to show us that anytime we take our anger and connected to a desired false remedy, there's a deeper problem at, at, at play. It's not just murder. So everyone gets angry. Jesus doesn't disagree with that. And our text today is built around the fact that anger is a regular part of all of our lives, founded or unfounded. The question has to be, what do you do when you get angry? What do you do with your anger? Listen, if you're living as a kingdom citizen, what you do with your anger matters. And hear me out. It's not an excuse to be like, you know, I just got anger issues. That becomes almost like a cute, what we think is a cute excuse. I just got anger issues or, or I come from a family where we don't handle our anger well. Okay, well, if God is in the business of sanctifying and, God, and the Holy Spirit is working on you the way it should, then that ought not ever be something that you say gleefully. It should be something that you say mournfully. Yes, we may come from habits, right? Different ways in which our family has grown up speaking a certain kind of way or being a certain kind of way or just quick off the top and just angry right away. We start with temper. Again, it's a reason, but it's not an excuse. And what Jesus is going to show us here is, uh, number one, what we do or the fact that murder is, is not murder, but anger is a very real thing. And we'll talk about it in a minute. Anger in and of itself isn't a bad thing either. That's another thing. Sometimes we're so, okay, anger, anger itself must be bad. So what we do is we get to a place where we stop telling the truth about things because we don't want to be angry because we think anger itself is sin. That is also not true. So let's take a look here at what Jesus says. Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26, as Jesus talks about murder, but then leads us into what is the foundational emotion behind it. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool 
will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to the court or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never, never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So you see, number one, you see just the authority that Jesus shows, right? Because he's basically going, listen, we've had the law now for thousands of years, right? The better part of three, almost three, 3,500 years or so. We've had the Old Testament law. So the, so the Jewish leaders, these leaders, their job was to, in many ways, memorize the scriptures and they knew it back and forth and they taught it. They were leaders. They were the spiritual authorities. So Jesus is telling them things they already know. He starts out. Basically, you read your Bible, you know murder's wrong, right? And they're like, yeah. All right, Jesus, we know this. And he says, but I say to you, Many times you see Jesus doing this. It's not enough for you to have the right behavior. Is your heart posture that should be undergirding that behavior right? So he's like, okay, you've been, you've been happy at the fact that you haven't committed murder. And yet one of the things he starts getting to is he says that, you know, we've said this before, any type of sin that you're involved in, the behavior part of the sin is just the iceberg, but it's the glacier that you should be worried about. The tip of the iceberg, that's something, okay, we see. It it makes itself readily apparent. Oh, no, there's an iceberg there. But what God is doing with our hearts is going, where are all the glaciers in your heart right now? What big kind of glacial areas of sin are so bad that a lot of it is under the water, so nobody else has to see it, so you can hide in plain sight. But once in a while, that iceberg pops up. Once in a while, somebody gets damaged by the iceberg that they didn't see coming. And maybe you didn't even pay attention that, that, that it was even there. And it pops up and causes incredible damage. So the real question that needs to be asked when we look at these first couple verses is how dangerous is anger really? Because according to Jesus, anger kills, not just physically, but spiritually. Again, Jesus is here saying that our righteousness and our 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 justice and our holiness is not merely good behavior or avoiding horrible, murderous outcomes. God's blueprint for holiness includes the heart. In in this case, what fuels this murderous heart? Anger. Now hear this. This isn't just general anger. Like it's important that we understand why Jesus is using the words he's using. This isn't just general anger. And I think it's important because I think sometimes we get to this place again where we equate anger with sin. So anything that makes us angry immediately, we think, oh, something's wrong. Oh, I, I shouldn't feel this way. Oh, I shouldn't have these emotions or these reactions that I'm having because, oh, my goodness, sin must be at the at the door. But this is this is this isn't just a general anger. How do we know this? Because God gets angry. We see examples of Jesus getting angry. We see examples of righteous anger that is provoked by what? The distortions and the destructiveness of sin. I'm going to say this later again, but if you don't remember anything else. You need to be asking yourself this question. Am I angry at the things God is angry at? That should be your question every time you get angry. Am I angry about the things that God is angry at? 
Doesn't mean that you can't have anger about other, other things, but the, here's the thing. How you approach or how you engage when you are engaging with righteous anger is going to look very different than how you engage when there's kind of a self-defined or even self-worshipful or self-protective anger. It's going to look different. We see these uh, examples here where the, the kind of anger that Jesus is talking about is not uh, your anger with, in, with high gas prices. I don't kill anybody because the gas is high, but this isn't about that. This isn't about your anger with how slow traffic is. This isn't your anger with how a show ended and you don't like the way that is. These, these are, that, that kind of anger is something very different. This is talking about when you, when you consider what Jesus is getting at, Yes, he starts with murder. He starts with the highest level and almost funnels us down because murder is only one example of what this kind of anger does. This verse 22 shows us that not only can anger be manifested in our behaviors and our physical violence towards one another, but anger in many in many cases, according to what we saw in verse 22, anger is also manifested in the way we talk to and about each other. In other words, we, in our anger, will use our language to tear one another down. Look at verse 22 again. I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Then he qualifies, because clearly it's not just anger in and of itself. This is why reading the whole text is important. People can look and be like, see, being angry is the sin. No, he's explaining really Ultimately, and some manuscripts, some of the older manuscripts include one other thing here. It says those of you who are angry without cause, because that's really what this is. Being angry without cause, not a cause you defined, not because you just feel it. What is the cause defined by God's anger? That's it. So so look at this text again. I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister without cause, will be subject to judgment. Then he qualifies what that anger looks like. Murder was the first one. Here, whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. Ultimately, what he's saying is something my grandmother used to tell me. I remember when we were younger, uh, growing up in church, there were certain words you weren't allowed to say. And so we, would, we had created backup words so that we could convey what it is we were trying to convey. And so we would say a word. It wouldn't be like a bad word, but it was a word that was bad enough that my grandmother knew we were just replacing the bad word with something else. Because we were like, at least the behavior isn't bad, right? I'm not using the words you said don't use. And so we would say, we'd be talking, my siblings and I, my cousins, we'd be talking, and maybe she took us to church. And I remember one day she stopped us and said, baby, all you're doing is junior cussing. To this day, we still use that phrase. You over there, junior cussing. She's like, you over there, junior cussing. And I'm like, what does she mean? And she's like, because the spirit in which you say that is the same as if you said the word. And what she was getting across was the heart behind your behavior matters. The heart behind the language you use matters. I certainly didn't get it then, but uh, she made sure we got it later. That's for sure. <laughs> Bless Mama Ford. I miss her. 
So you think you think through this and you realize Jesus is really saying the same thing. He's saying, yo, you've heard not to murder, but I'm telling you that the heart that undergirds murder exists in you still. And there are ways you will manifest that anger differently and you'll think you're good, but you're still in the same judgment. Because your heart is a heart that's rooted in the same place that a person who murders would. Do you realize how how heavy that had to be? For these Pharisees, these Jewish leaders who were like, yo, we we pray, we praise, we preach the word, we study, we give. For all intents and purposes, we are holy. How dare you allege that we could have those kind of hearts? We've never murdered anybody. And Jesus showing his authority is like, I know, you know, the scriptures. And he's already just said, we just talked about it last week. He didn't come here to abolish. So he's not saying that those verses don't matter. But he's like the heart behind those verses you still don't get. God's commandments should never be divorced from God's heart or you'll miss them. So here Jesus comes in and he starts to break down. Listen, if you get to a place where you're so angry without cause that you can then sinfully say things about your brother or sister in Christ, other people who bear the image of God. And you can take those things. You can use your words to begin to tear them down, whether it's lying, whether it's gossiping, whether it's some way to impugn their character. You're doing those things. And he's he actually goes a little bit further. And he says, whoever says you fool, You fool. Now, in the old King James, they use the Aramaic word that Jesus actually said, which is this this word where he says, if you dare say to your uh, to to your brother or sister, Racha. That word is a word that is more than just fool. It means basically empty, useless, good for nothing. You realize there are ways in which I might I might not have to say you're good for nothing, but I can use words that will make you feel reduced to nothing. Household I grew up in, we were a family of wordsmiths and we this was uh, of, of many weapons. This was one of our greatest. And when you grew up in that household, if you weren't ready to wield your weapons of warfare, uh, warfare, well, you were going to get torn down. And it was one of those things where it's like, you just better be ready if something comes and a certain person doesn't like what was done or a parent. My dad didn't like a certain thing. There would be things that you could be said to reduce you to feel like a pile of nothingness. Raka. You can say or do something that just makes somebody feel of no value. Sometimes we can get really mad that we do want to make people feel like you are of no value to me. Sometimes we can get to that place where it's like, I want you to know just how low, uh, how lowly valued you are to me. And Jesus said that is worthy of the same judgment as if you went and murdered someone. That's heavy. We use our words to tear people down. And then he says, you know, if you so, yeah, if you call somebody uh, uh, um, empty, Raha, or if you end up calling somebody fool, right, you end up calling someone uh, that that word fool is the Greek word moros or moros, where we get the word moron from. Again, it's the same thing. If you're getting to somebody that says you're empty headed, your intellect is so low, you just can't get it. If you were smarter, you would know that this is what this meant. You know, that's how we call each other fools. So Jesus is saying, if that's your go to. That's where your heart goes and then your heart allows your mouth to talk this way. 
you're subject to judgment. Now look, I think it's fair to say we've all encountered this degree of anger in some form or fashion in our life. You've been mad enough to maybe not kill somebody, but to say something to reduce them, to say something to make somebody think that they're just empty headed, uh, an idiot, moron, fool, uh, uh, without value, worthless. We've all encountered this on some level. So we have to ask ourselves this question. How serious should I take my anger? See, this is important because it's not enough to just be like, you know, you're just too sensitive. This is one of the worst things. This is how you know that you're not as humble as you think you are. When somebody is hurt by the words you use and your response is you're just too sensitive. And I think we've been guilty in different ways. I've been guilty. It's easy to do that. Your humility should stop you from saying that first. Now, we'll talk about what it means to be oversensitive. There's a there's an aspect there. But but if you are operating in humility, your first word should not be you're just too sensitive right now. The first words need to be, man, it's again, we've said this over and over again, but it's true. What is humility? The ability to say I wouldn't put it past me. So if somebody immediately goes, listen, the words that you just said, they're really tearing me down. They really make me feel X, Y and Z. Your first reaction can't just be, no, you are just being sensitive again. That might be true, but we've got to lead with humility first. You know what is true? I could do, I could do that. Let me step back. Let's talk about what, what the issue is right now. Then I'm sorry that I'm not trying. That's not my goal to get here. So let me step back because I realize that might be my go to. It's not my goal, but it's my go to. My go to is immediately challenge that. That's just what I do. So let me come back and repent first. Deal with that. Now, let's get back into the issue. It's not enough to just be like, oh, you know, you're just too sensitive because if that's your go to all the time, you are not aware of just how damaging your own anger and your words are, which means you're not safe. There are people who have been in relationships in and out, in and out, and they've heard the same complaints from multiple people. I'll just pick on I'll pick on us men for a minute. I'll just do that. Ladies, y'all be safe right now. I think it's very common. I'm not saying everybody, but it's very common for us, especially now, because there's a lot of famous talking heads, past and present, that I think embody this kind of language and logic in very ungodly uh, ways. But they're popular. So we think that that is exactly what we're supposed to be. It's not enough to just be like, well, you know, this is just what women do. They're just overly emotional. Do, Do you realize how bad that logic is? As men, we feel like we're saying something when we say it. We sound like idiots. Let me tell you why. Name one war that has not been started because of our emotions. We're the most emotional people on the planet, y'all. The majority of people that are in domestic violence situations are in situations because of an emotional man. Not saying I know we love to be. Yeah, but there's women, too. The numbers are nowhere near close. So let's not go there. We are emotional. We just call it something different. So it's not enough to just be like, well, you know, you because because what we do is that's our excuse then to be able to say what we want to say and be like, no, you're just emotional. And I have enough. There's enough talking heads that I look at as an expert that's given me the language I can use to be like, finally, somebody's saying what we want to say. What, what they're saying is still not true. Now, doesn't mean that on a case by case basis, we shouldn't have those convos, but to have a blanket thing there to be like, well, you know. Women are just emotional. And that's the reason why, you know, they, the, those things that they feel or those things that they bring, these critiques don't even want to have to hear that right now because they, they're just doing that feminine energy stuff. If that's feminine energy, then men are amongst the top females, if you want to use it that way. Because we're mad emotional, y'all. 
The reason why gang violence gets bad because of what, all the different things that connects with that, what it, desire for connection, desire for protection, what it means where you're from. Somebody says something that you feel like disrespected you. You're the most emotional person in the room. What would it make you go grab a weapon and go kill somebody because you felt like they disrespected you? Stop saying that we're not emotional. We are. So stop using excuses to hide that and then blame all of the emotional issues on women. OK, I'm going to get off that soapbox now, but that's important. It's really important because the, the reason we laugh about it, but that this is this is at the core of some really tough relationship issues that people have. This this seeming kind of battle between the sexes that it seems like we're in so often is because of a lot of false narratives about what we think are our natures. But you can't walk with Jesus and talk this way. You can remake Jesus to look like you and then talk that way. But you can't be following the Jesus of the Bible and act this way. There's no way for you to be humble if you act this way. If you can't be humble, you can't be like Jesus. So we see that Jesus is getting us to this place where he's saying, evaluate your heart and your motivations behind why you're saying what you're saying. Your anger begins to move you to say a thing or to do a thing. How do we deal with that anger? Because Jesus says this kind of anger makes us subject to judgment. So again, God doesn't just hate murder. He hates the heart behind the murder. He will judge someone for taking a person's life, but he also will judge someone who tears down a person's heart. Whether it's violence or venomous words, judgment comes in either case. So take a look again, verse 23 and 24, to answer this question. So, so how do we deal with it? All right, look, Daryl, I hear you. You're saying I shouldn't say this and I shouldn't say that. How do I deal with it? What do I do to deal with this anger? Again, we'll talk about whether it's founded or unfounded in a minute, but what do I do with my anger when I'm feeling it? How do I deal with it? Verse 23 and 24 again. So if you're offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to court. Why is he, especially 23 and 24, why is Jesus even saying this? Why bring this point over? He could have just been like, hey, shake your anger. Don't be mad like that. See, it'd be easy to say that, but see, that's the thing. The goal isn't necessarily to, how do I remove anger from my emotional reservoir? Anger is a part of what it means to be human. And frankly, anger is what it means to look like God in some ways, too. If there are things that are happening that are unjust and God is angry with it, we should be angry with it. If there are things that are harmful and sinful and God is angry with it, we should be angry with it. So, again, don't try to get to the point where how do I find a checklist to not be angry? The issue is, how do I ensure that my anger is founded, number one, and then how I deal with that anger? Well, so here's what I'm saying. A person who takes their anger seriously will take reconciliation seriously. If you are honest about your anger, no, if you're honest about the dangers of unfounded anger and you're real about that and you take it seriously enough, then you will take reconciliation just as seriously, if not more seriously. 
This is how you know when if, if you're not really about that life, if you're not really about what it means to seek after genuine reconciliation, you're more content to keep going over all the reasons why you're angry. But you really don't want to walk into what it means to, to seek out repair and to reconcile. This is. This is something also I feel like I need to qualify it or clarify here in this text, because I think once when we see this and Jesus says, if you know that somebody has something against you to go, keep, let me just start with this. Keep in mind, a lot of times this you, <laughs> this is how you know that God really means business. This is how you know that the church, at least the early church, was not about do whatever we got to do to keep getting them checks. See, this is something usually nobody's going to preach. I've yet to see a time where a pastor or the people get up and go, listen, if y'all got sin, don't even bring your tithes and offerings today. (laughs) Because we don't even take reconciliation as seriously as we should. But we should be in a place where it's like, listen, um, God cares so much. He cares more about us operating as the people of God. He cares more about us loving each other well, the way the way Jesus loves us. He calls us to love one another. He cares so much about that, that he wants that before he wants your prayer. He wants that before he wants your Bible study. He wants that before he wants your church attendance. Why does why do we need to say that? Because many of us hide behind our prayer, hide behind our Bible study and hide behind our church attendance. That's how we convince ourselves that we must be good. I, I, I preached a good sermon. I must be good. I played, I sang, I showed up, I gave, I, I, I'm faithful, I serve. All those things are all good. God cares about all those things. If you're a growing faithful Christian, all those things should be true. But God says, as important as all those things are, if you're not one that seeks out reconciliation first, I don't even want to, I don't want your gifts. I don't want your service. I don't want your attendance. God cares so much more about this, the way that we relate to each other, far more than the way that we perform for him. So this means that it is. This means that if you know, this is where I was going. Many times people will read this text and they're like, "Okay, so I guess that means anytime I hear somebody has an issue with me, I better go find them first before I bring something to the altar. If, if, you know, cause what happens is you end up becoming held hostage by any type of feeling that a person has. And now all of a sudden you are just running around trying to figure out, are you mad at me? Okay. Let me figure out what to do. Are you mad at me? Okay. Let me figure out what to do. So as I said, you might be mad at me. What should I do? That is not the tailspin that God calls us to now keep in context. What are we talking about here? People who have actually done something wrong, who have taken their anger, married it to a desired remedy, done it all incorrectly, then caused sin to someone. So who is this directed to? If you know that your sin has caused real harm to someone else, don't come up here in this church without dealing with it first. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying if you this isn't just you heard somebody was hurt or upset by you now, that could be. You could hear something and be like, man, I did sin against them. I need to go make it right. But ultimately, this is directed to the offender. I think sometimes people think this is for the offended, per se. So it's like, again, somebody doesn't like me. Let me go fix it out. No, this is the offender. If you have been one that has actually done wrong, you got angry, 
more, more times than not without cause and then got angry and caused some kind of issue, said something, lied or, or gossiped or uh, murdered in this case. What do we say it is? What do we say is the anatomy here of, of, of murder? It equals founded or unfounded anger plus a false remedy. The same thing happens with lying. Founded or unfounded anger plus a false remedy. Why do we lie? Specifically lies on other people. Because there's a way that I want to look in the story and there's a way I want them to look in the story. So for me, if I'm angry enough to want to lie on a person, what that means is I, the remedy I want is I want to create the right narrative. I need the right narrative shown so that I look more like the hero and they look like the villain. Or maybe I'm not even a part of the story. I would just rather they look like the villain. And so I lie or I or I uh, uh, make up new facts or ignore certain facts. I, I ignore certain things that would go against what I'm saying. I begin to I want that remedy so badly. I want the narrative to look a certain way so badly. If I gossip, I want them to look a certain way so badly. I'm angry. Why? Because I believe the narrative should go a certain way. So you know what that does? When I'm angry and I really want the narratives to look a certain way, y'all, the way our biases work, the way that our sin nature works, the way that we misremember facts or the way that we uh, 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 grab on to what's called alternative facts. The reasons why we do those things is because we would prefer to ignore disconfirming information about the narrative that we want to hold on to. I don't want to hear the other facts you have that's going to show that this is probably not the case. I just want to hold on to the same thing that justifies my anger so I can feel justified in going to get my remedy. So I'm angry because I think that the narrative should go a certain way. So I'm going to ignore the fact finding mission. You realize that when because of our biases, you realize that the way that you interpret and comprehend what you're looking at is going to be skewed. That's just all of us. If you dig down this theological trail long enough, there's people talk about all the ways that the fall, that sin affected mankind. One of the ways you hear this in theological circles, one of the ways that that the, that we have been affected by the fall is something called the noetic effects of the fall. with No or news coming from knowledge. The way that we know, the way that we understand what we think we're looking at, that's also been affected by our sin nature. You realize that that's one of the reasons why many times people have complained, because you could have eyewitness testimony from two different people and they might really believe they both saw the same thing. But so often they don't even report the same thing in the same way. Because we you know, I had a professor one time that referred to it as the tyranny of the witness in so many ways. It's important. Now, it doesn't mean we need them. So many times that's all you can go on. But people have there's been study after study shown many times, depending on the situation or depending on how much time has elapsed. People may not always remember things the same way. And that's just just natural thing that happens with time. Add emotions and bias and anger and feelings and all those things. What you think you saw may not be exactly what you saw. But it doesn't matter because what you think you saw is now gospel truth for you. What you thought you read is gospel truth for you. What you thought you heard is gospel truth for you. And so if somebody says, no, 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 here's actually something else factually that shows that what you're feeling might be based off of bad facts. So this is why I'm saying it's not I'm not pushing out 
uh, the fact that uh, I'm not pushing out the idea that there might be people who are oversensitive and sometimes they're oversensitive because they are so emotionally uh, 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 obsessed with holding on to a certain narrative because that's true as well. And that means that if that's you and it's going to be all of us at different times, if you are emotionally obsessed with holding on to one side of the narrative, you're not going to want to hear facts that are disconfirming either. And you're just going to keep feeling justified in the anger that you feel, even though there are facts that might indicate otherwise. So when we get to this place where we have to ask, Lord, how do I deal with this anger? Jesus says, make sure that you go and reconcile with that person before you come. Now, why is that super important? And how do we do it? Well, I'll say this really quickly. Um, one of the things that Jesus says about 13 chapters later We won't get to uh, it as a full sermon, but I'm going to read it to you really quickly because this is something that in many church contexts we do really poorly. Whenever there's conflict between folks, because as long as you got people, you're going to have conflict. You love each other in Jesus, but you may not always like each other. You got to figure out what what we do with that. We don't always get along. There's going to be ways that we see things differently, especially on the non-essential things. There are going to be things that we're going to see differently. So what do we do? I think it's still true that Jesus just said, if if we've been sinned against, there's something that we need to do. Right. So here's what we do. Matthew 18. We know this, but we need to hear this because we don't do this well. And very few churches, I think, do this well because we get stuck in these cycles and we don't. It's uncomfortable. We want to do this. Here's what uh, Matthew 18 says. Matthew 18, verse 15. This is when Jesus is talking to his disciples. This, by the way, this is right after the disciples were arguing about who was going to be the greatest in heaven. And Jesus is having to correct them because they're still thinking about themselves. And then shortly uh, thereafter, you see him uh, predicting his death. And then they've got issues with uh, paying taxes and they're trying to trick him up. Hey, who should we pay taxes to? Then after that, uh, the disciples end up asking Jesus, who's going to be the greatest in heaven? And then shortly after all of that, as he's walking through all of that, they get to this place where Jesus says, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, then tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you, which is really like an unbeliever because if a person refuses to repent of something, you've got a bigger issue. Now, think about this. Why does Jesus tell us to do this? Number one, what this means is you don't get to be the judge and jury over whether or not your uh, uh, anger is justified. You might be right that your anger is justified, but you don't get to be the judge and jury of that. This is why community and this island Christianity can never work. This is why when people are like, I got church, I just go online and I watch and I do whatever. That's great. You can get sermons that way. You can even get worship songs that way, but you cannot get accountability and community that way because you might have thoughts about a thing and there is no circle by which you can evaluate. Am I angry about the things God's angry about? I'm angry at that person. It's important that I have a safe place of impartial folks who are going to be like, hey, listen, um, this is this is one of the reasons why as churches, what they often do is if there's real conflict and you go to your brother or sister with the conflict. What if your conflict is not something that is a God issue, but you think it is? Now you're ready to divide over it. What should you do? Well, if we can't agree, 
Then we go to the elders of the church. Many uh, uh, translations we use elders, leaders, people in the church who ultimately are responsible to know God's word and apply God's word. So if you're angry with this person over here, you're angry with them and you think it's justifiable anger. Might be right, might be wrong. You think it's founded. It might be founded, it might be unfounded. How do you know if your anger is founded? You have to do that in community. You don't get to determine that yourself. It's harder for us here because we are intensely individualistic and it's very difficult to understand that our relationships don't just belong to us. Your relationships don't just belong to you. We could feel like, well, this is private. This is private. They are um, into some degree personal, but they're never exclusively private. The relationships matter, especially in the context of the church. Because we are a community and we are bonded together. And when one person's hurting, it can cause real pain for others. So what should happen? I'm hurt. I feel like you hurt me. All right. I come to you and you're like, I don't really see where the sin is here. What's the issue? Now, it could be something that's small. You can be like, yo, I'm sorry. Saying there's nothing wrong at all with acknowledging. It may not be a big thing, but it's enough humility to be able to go. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't see that. OK. But if you feel like you've been sinned against and they don't see that they have actually sinned against you, then you go to elders, leaders, folks who are loving and impartial to go, okay, what's the problem? Because see, if I'm angry with you, it's important that I bring, if I come to you and you don't hear it, you've done real sin. We're talking about sin now, y'all. We're not talking about preference. But there's real sin. And I come to you to go, they have sinned against me. And I'm feeling really hurt and I'm feeling really scared. I'm feeling really X, Y, and Z because I've been sinned against. And, there, and there's a remedy that has not been offered to me. And I, how can I be in a community of people that says we love Jesus if I feel like I'm not being loved the way Jesus loves me? Y'all, that does matter. We're not supposed to just push that to the side. So somebody says that. I say that I'm angry. So I need to be able to go to you. And if I go to you and you're like, yeah, I don't see it. Sorry. Good luck with you. Then I need to go. Hey, y'all. There's an issue here. Now, we need to think about why. That's an issue. It's not just an issue because I want my just dessert. It's an issue because if that is the way that we function, other people are probably hurting in the same way. There's probably other people that have been hurt in this way. Maybe it hasn't been brought up. Maybe they've just like, let me just, I don't want to cause any problems. I'm just going to move. Or maybe people may have left the community altogether because they felt that way and they didn't bring it. And so now that happens, right? So I come to you. You don't hear it. Now I got to go to the elders, the leaders and go, y'all, there's real legitimate sin in the camp. And I have been impacted by this sin and I want to make it right. But they won't want. Now, here's what the elders job is. We've had it here. There have been issues here at the church. Where we've had to do this. People who know and understand God's heart and God's word, they're going to go, OK, you've got this issue. Tell me what the issue is. And you share the facts, not just how you felt about what happened. Share the facts. Here's what the fact finding elders are supposed to do. Let me look at the facts and see if these facts actually show that there was some violation of God's heart or God's law or God's word here against you. If there really was, then we got to go deal with it. So you need to be humble enough to be able to hear that and go, OK, so I'm bringing this up and the elders are going to go, wow, based on what we're seeing, you're right. They, they actually lied on you or they actually harmed you or they actually physically did something to you or they actually um, uh, slandered you, whatever it is. Think about the things that God calls sin. They bring those things up. These things have happened. They've said this or they've done this. And this is the, da the damage, the injury to me. 
And the elders are going to go, yeah, we, we've seen this. We've talked to both and we see this now. So now we've got to make bring reconciliation. You realize that's how community is supposed to look. That's why it's so important, right, for us to be able to have community and relationship in that way. Community is supposed to look like that. But a lot of times it doesn't. But when we're doing it the right way, that also means that if I'm the one that brought the accusation, if I'm the one that's saying I was sinned against and I go to my spiritual community and they're like, yeah, nothing that you said actually is sin. Um, we can talk about other things and ways that we need to be able to get these secondary or tertiary issues. We can definitely talk about ways that you guys can maybe try to find a meeting of the minds, but let's not elevate this to a sin thing. Because what happens is once you elevate it to a sin thing, there's anger that's unfounded and unfounded anger wants a remedy. And your desire for a remedy when your anger is unfounded will consume you and lead you to judgment. So Jesus is making this point that it, ultimately, what does he care about? He cares that we are a reconciled people always, that we live in peace with one another, that we live not in, hey, let's not cause problems or let's avoid hard situations. It's how do we hold hands in the midst of some of these hard situations? So I'll end with this. We need to create, all of us, every human being, but especially here at Icon, we need to create what I'm going to call rhythms of wrath. I might sound crazy. Man, why would, you, why would you want anything with wrath in it? Rhythms of wrath. You can say rhythms of anger, rhythm, whatever. But when you feel angry and you feel always, when you're angry, many times you're going to feel justifiably angry. So, so these rhythms of anger, rhythm of wrath. Let's think about this. I'm going to give you maybe three, no, maybe about five things to do with your anger. Because we need to ask ourselves, what do I do with my anger? I'm going to get angry. So, so I'm angry. Okay, here's, here's a checklist, right? This is a helpful checklist. Okay, start with, the scripture says, be slow to anger. James 1.19, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So, so here's the thing. Why does the anger typically not produce the righteousness? Because we're biased. Because many times our anger may not be rooted in truth. Many times our anger will be rooted in partial truths and then madly of the rest. So it's really important that we are get to a place. I don't want to be somebody that's just quick temper. It's one of the reasons why when you look at the, the requirements for a potential elder, there's supposed to be one that is not quick tempered. Why? Because your judgment's going to be skewed if you're quick tempered. You, do you realize if you're quick to anger, you're probably not a very wise person. You're not. You might be really smart, but you're not a very wise person because you actually will be led by your emotions. Even though you think you're not emotional, you will be led by your emotions more often than not. You're not a wise or safe person. And you'll keep wondering why you keep running into the same types of problems. And for you, it's everybody else all the time. When truth of the matter is the enemy is the inner me. So the first thing is be slow to anger. How do I figure out? Like how to not be that person that's so quick tempered and so easily triggered by things that may not be justifiable anger that God would be angry with. Second thing now. OK, I, I'm, I'm trying to be slow to anger, but I'm angry. So now what? I'm angry. Evaluate and classify your anger. You've got to go through these kind of this this evaluation, this 
almost diagnostic check, this how do I figure out what the nature of my anger is? I said this before, just being angry doesn't entitle you to a remedy. Being angry by itself doesn't mean anything because it could be founded or unfounded. So if it's unfounded, you're still going to be walking around talking about I need to get mine, but you don't even have a legitimate claim. So just being angry doesn't entitle you to a remedy. Sometimes your anger is a you issue and not God's issue. So that means you got to ask questions. What am I mad about? Is my anger justified? Go back to that question I started with. Am I angry? about the things that God is angry with. Now, that's a very big question because that's going to show you just what your own growth and, and what it means for your heart to be made to look more like Jesus. You're going to know, you're going to know how you're doing with your growth and looking like Jesus when you're angry. That's actually how you know where you are. Sometimes we think, well, I haven't been angry in X amount of time. I must be moving great in Jesus. Well, you might just be avoiding some things. You might have some other issues you're conveniently avoiding because maybe you're, uh, what did we talk about before? You're more of a, a peacekeeper and not a peacemaker. So you've got issues. You've just successfully just pushed it at bay, pushed it deeper, pushed it deeper until those tectonic shifts of conflict begin to come together and boom. Am I angry about the things that God is angry about? Here's another question to ask. This is a hard one. Am I deceiving myself? Am I deceiving myself? Am I am I believing things that actually aren't facts? And then using that to fill in the blanks of the things that have made me frustrated or things that have uh, disappointed me or expectations that weren't met. Am I taking things and filling in blanks and therefore deceiving myself by creating a narrative that is not accurate? Am I hiding? Am I playing fast and loose with facts just to justify my anger. I'm hitting this so hard because unjust anger has to be evaluated and put to death immediately. Unjust anger. It needs to be evaluated, rooted out and put to death immediately. That's why Matthew 18 is so important. That, that's the reason why church is supposed to function this way. This is why people have to help identify whether there's actual sin causing the anger. And that's why we humbly engage in that process. Third thing. OK, I'm angry. I, I, you know, I'm doing the slow to anger thing. I'm trying to figure out what my triggers are, trying to make sure. OK, I really am angry still. Uh, I'm doing the things to evaluate. I'm doing. OK, I've seen it. There's legitimate things. I have a legitimate reason to be angry. Here's the next thing. Can I overlook this offense? Now that's that's a hard one. I think it's interesting that scriptures would say Proverbs 19, 11, good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. So so this isn't overlooking something that's not a big deal. Sometimes there are things that might be reason for justifiable anger. What that tells me is there are things that are justifiably uh, justifiable reasons to be angry. And yet there are things that we might still be able to overlook in the midst of it. Not every justifiable offense is one that you have to have a remedy for. Now, that's hard because I'm not going to tell you which ones those are. I can't. That's for you to be able to figure out, OK, is this something I can overlook? Where I think the church gets in trouble is when we start telling people which ones they ought to overlook. 
That's what spiritual abuse starts looking like. And we think we're holy because we got the scriptures on our side. And the problem is God doesn't tell you which ones those are. That's where wisdom and community and trusting God and learning what it means to walk with him and go, okay, in this case, I'm not lying about what happened. I think sometimes people think, you know what? No, I, I just looked at it wrong. You didn't sin against me. That was just me. God is never requiring you to tell untruths about things in order to keep the peace. In other words, God is never going to make you lie, even about your own self, to keep the peace. So, so I have to ask the question, can I overlook this offense? Yes, they lied on me. They lied. What do I do? It's shown, it's proven they lied. The facts show that they lied. Can I overlook it? And there are a lot of situations that could bring that either way. We ought not be judging folks if they're like, I just can't. Well, there's just something about your maturity then that's not. Then we start going to our anecdotes. I got lied on and I was able to be able to do whatever. And guess what? We're best friends today. Well, good for you. I'm not clapping to y'all. Y'all are great. That's what I'm saying. But <laughs> I had to go in some direction. Good for you. That's wonderful. And that's your story. And praise God. God was on display there in that way. But again, don't start. We talked about it last week. Don't start pushing your fences on other people. It's okay. That works. That was your story. And that's incredible. But that may not be someone else. People are coming with other baggage, other wounds, other dangerous situations, other issues of safety and otherwise. Don't start pushing or proffering your story on other people. Can I overlook this offense? Now, if the answer is no, then the next step is. How do I move quickly to make these things right? I've got to go to the person. I got to go through and we got to go through the process of confession and forgiveness and restitution. Because that's what reconciliation looks like. We've talked about this before. The difference between forgiveness and restitution, forgiveness and reconciliation. Far too often in the church, we've been guilty of making those things synonymous and they're not. So if I overlook the I can overlook the offense. We, and, and, and we may be able to still function and go alongside. Now, the nature of our relationship may not be the same. Because repair still needs to be done. Restitution still needs to be done. And so how we engage that might look different. But if it gets to a point where it's like, I, I can't overlook this. The pain is far too great. We need to move to make things right. And that's where it's like, OK, what you cause, we have a break in fellowship I cannot fellowship with you as long as this kind of damage and this kind of sin is at play and you don't think there's anything wrong. Because here's the thing. This isn't just like a reason to just stay mad. If there's legitimate sin in the camp, I have to walk with you and trust you. How do I continue to trust you if you don't think there's anything wrong with what you did? How do I know that you won't do that again? And the answer can't be this over spiritual. I just got to trust God and trust the spirit on that one. Well, sometimes the spirit is going to be the one that's going to stir that thing up to go. That needs to be reconciled or you're not safe. So we got to go to that place. Okay, can I overlook? No, if not, how do I move quickly to make things right? How do I get to a place where I can share? We can share what happened so we can get to a place where the other party can go based on this. And in my humility, I have to confess I did this. You're right. Maybe I didn't see it that way. Maybe I wasn't lying. I wasn't intentionally trying to say um, on purpose, no, I didn't do this to you. Maybe I genuinely didn't think I did. Okay. And maybe there's a number of reasons, heart reasons or otherwise, why I didn't see that. Maybe. 
But based on this and based on the community together, I see this. I confess. I want your forgiveness. And not only do I want your forgiveness, but here are the steps I'm going to take to make substantive repair. Y'all, can you imagine what a community would look like if that's how we function? Like I'm committed to making real restitution. And then after that, go back in fellowship. You realize that's really what Jesus is saying there. Hey, all this ceremonial stuff, the church stuff, that's important and we need it. But if you don't go to each other and figure out how to reconcile, if you know that somebody has something against you because of your sin and you don't actually work to reconcile first, don't think you're going to perform your way into a good relationship with me. That's really what God is saying. You don't perform your way into a relationship with me. You can't perform your way into avoiding some of the consequences of your sin against other people. And finally, what we said, get back in fellowship with one another. Now, Jesus ends this discourse in 25 and 26 by saying this, and this is what he says that I think is super important. I'll say it really quickly. He says, um, reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to court. He's using this picture of people who are so angry that they're going to, you've defrauded me in some way. I've got to go to court to get my remedy. And ultimately, we see this other ways where Paul calls people out for going to the courts to sue each other because they're like, we... We're going to judge angels. He brings up this, the language about the new kingdom, the new heavens, the new earth. He's like, if we are going to have the wisdom of God to be able to do that, how can we not work these problems out together? What kind of, a, of an example do we put before the world if we're going into this Roman court, suing one another, saying we both serve the living God? We both serve Jesus who says he's given us the ministry of reconciliation, but we just can't seem to do it. So pagan judge, do what you do. So this is why Jesus is saying, make sure that you, if y'all got it, he's using this as like a picture and a metaphor, but it's true. The, the idea is as quickly as possible before we have to put our problems into the hands of people who don't have the wisdom of God to deal with, try to do this amongst each other. And this is the reason why. This is the reason why Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, and we hear this all the time, right? The King James used to say what? Be angry and sin not. Be angry and do not sin. Let not the sun go down on your anger or wrath and give no opportunity to the devil. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. You see how when we're angry, the opposite are all true here? When I talk about this is what I talk about, things that will build up, that it may give grace to those who hear. You see, if you have unfounded anger, the way that you're talking about people won't sound like this. And do not. And then he says, and this is a really big one. If you do all those things wrong, if we are functioning as people with un with 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 unjustified anger. When you have unjustified anger and you complete you levy that against other people. Look at what Paul says. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You know what that means? That means that whenever we're holding on to unjustified anger and the ways that we sin against each other when we do it, we're sinning against God. We're grieving God's heart. 
This was never just about you. It was never just about the other person. It's about what it means to be in real relationship with God and say, I can't say I love you, God, and continue to grieve your heart. And so Paul is saying, if you don't function, if you don't figure out how to live in reconciled community, you are grieving the heart of God. So what does he say? Let your bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice. Along with all ill will. Along with all of the faulty motivations. That means the nasty nice, that's malicious too. The bless your hearts, those are malicious too. The couldn't be me, that's malicious too. Only some of y'all know that, but that's, that's malicious too. The ways in which we say something to really kind of make somebody feel a little bit less, that's malicious too. Instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So at the end of the day, it still comes back to Jesus. We've said this over and over again. The work of the believer, the life of the believer is one in which Jesus is always the unavoidable issue. He can't be avoided even in your anger, whether you feel justified or not, because on some level, you're going to represent Jesus in the way that you respond. So how then do we do this? How do we, if you're angry, how does the angry heart find peace? It is in the person and the work of Jesus. And here's why, because this can sound overly religious and it's, and it's not. There's very practical reasons why. If you're overwhelmed by the ways that Jesus has forgiven you and reconciled you to a holy God, if you are just overwhelmed by that, you won't be able to do anything else but engage in reconciliation with others. You're not going to be able to do anything else, right? Through the death of Jesus, uh, true forgiveness from God is now possible. You know what that forgiveness is for? Every poisonous thought, every poisonous word, every uh, anger poisoned action. You see, what, what happens when we trust Christ, we begin to be set free from that guilt that Jesus talked about. So, so we don't have to fear the judgment that we know we deserve. I don't have to fear that judgment. I know, I know that I've said a thing about this person. I know that I felt the wrong thing. I know that I've had unjustifiable anger. To admit that means, and this sometimes that's a deeper thing, to admit it means I'm going to have to face some consequences. I'm going to have to face judgment for this. Jesus removed that judgment for us. You know what that means? We should feel free to engage reconciliation now. We don't have to fear what might come when we have to admit I was wrong. Second reason. There's, if we don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, his power is in us and we, his power affects real change. That's how we can let things like bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice. That's how we can let it be put away from us. We now can be kind and tenderhearted. You're not kind and tenderhearted because you're just naturally gifted that way. That's where our anecdotes start getting a little bit too me focused. 
I got, I was so mad, but you know what? I just laid my battles down and let Jesus handle it. Bless God. You might get it. And that's great. That, that actually might be. But the point is, it's different when you say the best I can do is offer you my example versus the best I can do is offer you the person of Jesus Christ. You see, if I offer the attributes of who Jesus is more than my hero story, then I don't have to be the hero of the story. Jesus stays the hero of the story. Jesus has to be the hero of your story. Your anger. Jesus has to be the hero of that story. You can't just be my biggest goal is to feel vindicated. If you're angry, maybe you've buried that anger deep inside of you. Maybe it's right at the surface. Maybe it's ready to break out wherever it is, however it's affecting you. Don't avoid it. Don't avoid it. I'm not saying go look for problems, but don't avoid it. It'd be easy to find them. Trust me. You don't avoid it because you need to do the, the plumb the depths of your own heart. But don't minimize it. Don't don't rationalize it and don't feed it. Instead, face it. Face it in the light of who Jesus is. Let his words here from Matthew five convict you, drive you to a place of forgiveness. Let his words also lead you down this this path of humility, of patience, of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of peace. And if we're following Jesus through the forgiveness of his cross, then we should be giving attention, attention to and guarding our hearts from poisonous anger. That's the poisonous anger that Jesus is talking to us today about. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. For loving us in the midst of all the ways that our hearts do not function the way that that they should. The ways in which we want to redeem ourselves. To create remedies for ourselves. To create narratives for us. God, I pray that on some level, on every level, that you would convict us, that you would show us the ways in, in which we are so prone to nursing really bad narratives, to finding excuses, to hold on to unjustified anger. God, I get it. We get it. Anger is a, it's an addictive fuel. God, sometimes there are ways in which you hear stories about how athletes will create false narratives just to keep them angry enough to perform well. God, there's something wrong with us where we need sometimes, we need to create false narratives just to feel justified or just to feel motivated. God, we know that that is a function of the fall. And so God, I pray that when we get angry, not if, when we get angry, that your spirit will remind us to stop and ask the question, am I angry about what you're angry about? Lord, we love to sing, it's all about you. We love to sing that, that all the things we want, we want holiness and we long for it and we want it and we say we want more of you. And yet, God, when we're angry, we couldn't be any farther away. So, God, I pray that you will redeem not just the behaviors, not just the actions. God, I pray that you will redeem our thoughts, that you would redeem our heart, that you would redeem our emotions and that you would redeem our anger. So that we only find ourselves getting angry at the sin, the destructive 
deceptive nature of sin. And we're angry with you about that. And then give us wisdom on what to overlook. Give us wisdom on how to lovingly engage one another. Give us wisdom on how to lovingly reconcile. Because God, we want our lives to sing, to be that sweet fragrance that says that everything in our lives are not about us ultimately, but they are about you. And we ask you these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.